Welcome back, folks, to In the Chill of the Night, episode number 14. I'm here with Pete Gagliardi and a good friend of mine, Rich Norcross. We can sort of go back in time and have a conversation about that worst day that he encountered. But much more important than that is what he's done since that. And we're probably looking at well over 25 years this incident has happened. And I've gotten to listen to Rich uh, many times talk about his incident and what has uh, gone on in his life since then. And uh, every single time, I'm super inspired, and I know you will be too. Hey, Pete, how are you? Hey, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So you got to meet Rich. Hey, Rich, uh, welcome aboard in the chill of the night. Uh, thanks for coming on. I know we've been talking about it. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, my pleasure to be here, Ray. Pete, uh, you know, Ray, I've known for a long time, and it's it's good to see an old friend and help him out. I know in my career in the state police, anytime I ever called you, you'd help me out. Even if it was just a tour around town, you always helped me out. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. So, uh, Rich, uh, you know, I, I sort of gave it away on the intro uh, why why we really want to have this conversation with you tonight. I mean, what's going on? across the country is just uh, just terrible over the last uh, year and a half. It seems that law enforcement is, it's open season on cops. And, you know, Pete has talked about this before, like, why is that happening? But more importantly, I th- think you're certainly an example of, uh, you know, a survivor and certainly wow. from a critical incident and and what you've done and what you've learned from that and and certainly what you have been able to um, educate in terms of your insight around the country uh, in terms of surviving a critical incident and then going forward, living your life. But before we jump into that, uh, can you sort of tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe starting back to uh, those early years of uh, wanting to be a cop? Sure. I was, uh, I actually started out in uh, high school as a police explorer way back when. I've always been a big fan of the Explorer program and continue to support the Explorer program through the Boy Scouts whenever I can. Um, From there, I was a dispatcher for a little bit, and then I became a cadet in Woodbury City. In that point in time, uh, most of the police officers in Gloucester County started out as cadets in Woodbury or West Efford. I got picked out of the program and worked in a little town in Gloucester County called uh, National Park, um, where, you know, I worked as a, you know, single officer at a time, one square mile town back then, about 21 liquor establishments. Uh, so it was. Why is, a, it, why is it called National Park? I've always wondered that. Uh, because Red Bank Battlefield is there and Red Bank. Uh, was a critical battle during the American Revolution. It actually forced the British to retreat from Philadelphia down to... Wow. No, no, it was a huge battle. And they they wanted to get it made into a national park, uh, but they only ever succeeded in getting it recognized by the state and county. But that's, that's why the town was named National Park, trying to get the federal government to bring, you know, the Red Bank Battlefield and up as a national uh, park. Um, and that's wow. the that's the story of it. That's why they changed the name of the town, hoping that would help sway them back in the early 1900s. 
Um, so I was a police officer there. <laughs> um, I, I learned a lot there. I learned how to talk to people. I learned about working with the community back then. Um, I learned what being part of the community meant. Uh, then I went on to Haddon Heights Police Department. Uh, I was in patrol for a while. I was a DARE officer for a number of years. And then I, I uh, ran our community policing unit uh, for a number of years, as well as a detective with the department. Uh, in 1995, I was uh, shot in the line of duty during a search warrant uh, execution. Also at that time, um, the lead detective from the prosecutor's office, Jack McLaughlin, was shot and killed. And my younger brother, uh, he and his partner were off duty. They responded in when they heard on the radio what was going on. And my younger brother was also shot and killed in that incident. Um, it took me a little over a year to recover from my wounds uh, to the point where I was functioning again. Um, and then I um, retired from Haddon Heights PD and went to work as an agent. Uh, with Camden County Prosecutor's Office, where I was appointed the commander of the uh, intelligence services team, where we did everything from street gangs to homicides to organized crime to bikers to white supremacists. You name it, if it was organized, we were involved with it. Um, great, great group of people I worked with from the sheriff's office, the county jail, the city police, the state police. Um, and the old Camden City Police Department. And we we brought all of those disciplines together and we really affected a lot of change in the uh, city and county of Camden. Um, and then I was recruited um, to come work for the company I work for now. Out of there, they wanted my intelligence expertise to head up their intelligence division. We had just uh, at that point, begun our relationship with the New Jersey State Police. And since I had worked with so many people at the uh, outfit over the years, they wanted me to come and head that up. And since then, when I left Camden, I had hoped to never supervise anyone with a pulse ever again. Um, but I ended up uh, listening to the things that uh, the nice things people said about me. And I've been promoted uh, three times in the company, and I'm now the executive vice president of CSI Technology. Um, and then as a result of my shooting, I spend at least once a month, I'm doing a lecture somewhere uh, about the lessons learned from my shooting, because it's really important that people learn lessons and make changes. You know, for example, you know, we'll get, I guess we'll get into the shooting in a little bit, but you know, back then, and this occurred in 1995, in Camden County in 1995, to get a SWAT team took an act of God. And nobody was trained in how to execute warrants. It was old time, you know, sergeants tell you what to do, you know, everybody buckle up and jump on the horse and go do what you're told to do. And that's the way things were done forever. Um, that day we were outgunned and we didn't have the equipment we needed. And as a result, we took casualties and we had a lot of problems. Um, and I, with others really pushed for a deep analysis of what occurred so that we could affect change. And wow. as you, and as you noted, Ray, um, 
you know, one of the things that I've been doing a lot lately is talking to the recruits, the younger, the, the newest generation coming in, as well as, you know, some of the folks that are within their five, 10 year mark and, and a lot of supervisors and chiefs exactly about what you said, you know, more officers are getting uh, shot, injured, you know, beat up, whatever, injured in the line of duty. And a lot of it, unfortunately, I see, I, I, I have to point at the media and point a finger at them because they've made it to the point where officers are hesitant to take action when action is needed. And also as a result of the media, you know, that delay that they take, that delay that the stutter step, so to speak, you know, that's the split second that it takes for something to happen. Um, after my shooting, I've worked with a lot of police officers, firefighters, uh, soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, even Coast Guard guys that have all been involved in critical incidents. And there is one common denominator in every one of those critical incidents. And that is it just turned from OK to oh shit in the blink of an eye. And when people are hesitating to do their duty, because they're afraid of how it's going to look on CNN or Fox or some other news outlet that 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 seconds that they take could could um, you know cost them their lives or cost somebody else their life. And then the other thing that I see is a lot of agencies and a lot of um, government entities are encouraging their police to not engage the public really at all. Um, you know, don't make pedestrian stops, don't make car stops. Um, and as a result of that, you have an entire group of criminals where when when I was on the job, you know, the criminals would hide their guns and flower pots or on top of the wheel wells and things like that. Nowadays, you know, they feel they can just carry the guns with immunity because they're pretty confident nobody's going to stop them. And that, I think, is leading to a lot of the violence that's occurring against police these days. And that's just a continuing thing that keeps evolving and evolving and gets worse and worse and worse. And then you wind up in a situation like we have in some of the Central American countries where the citizens pray for uh, an end to the impunity to, to, that the government is unable to deal with with crime in those countries it becomes a question of unable versus unwilling uh in my opinion um i it certainly starts out as unwilling and then after a while it gets so far beyond it turns into they even if they wanted to i don't know what what some of these countries would do to to shut it down militarily uh, to get control. It's yeah. Tough. Yeah. If you let it go too far, then you become, then it becomes a problem. And, you know, even, even in Camden with the, the, the crime that we had there and, and the violence that was occurring in Camden, we always, at least for my unit, which was in charge of this, as well as our community outreach unit, we always had wonderful relationships with the communities. 
Um, we, we involved every grassroots organization that we could and talked to them. We were very, very active with the, uh, the pastors association in Camden, because I saw the spiritual leadership of the city is the key, um, to, to trying to maintain order and peace and, you know, to protect the citizens, you know, I always got offended when people would say, oh, Camden's this or Camden's that. You know, Camden had a lot of problems, but some of the most wonderful people in the world I met were in that city. And, you know, you can't just blanket say, you know, this area is horrible. Um, Some of the, the greatest people that I met, some of the most, you know, dedicated human beings give you the shirt off your back I met in that town. and. Um, and I've, I, you know, then I can go over to a ritzy town that has tons of money and deal with, you know, some of the worst people on the planet earth. So it's, you know, I'm a big believer in community policing, um, you know, to give you kind of an idea with our community policing unit in Haddon Heights, um, and get me Haddon Heights is a beautiful town. I, I, uh, grew up there part of my life. I lived there when I got shot. Um, I only lived about three blocks from where I got shot. Um, the town's a beautiful town, but as part of the community policing unit, the way I broke the town up is each community officer had a school in their district. And then I was the dare officer for all the schools. So I got to know the kids, the parents, you know, it was very rare that any one of us would go on a call and we wouldn't know somebody in the household. And, you know, my brother took it really seriously. John John was a very, very dedicated police officer and held the same values that I did. And John had basically adopted this little first grade class in, in the Glenview Avenue School, which was in his area. And they had planted a vegetable garden outside of the classroom. And the kids got a kick out of my brother stopping there when he was on patrol to, to weed the garden and pick the fruit and wave to the kids in the classroom and make fa- make faces at them. And the teachers loved them. The kids loved them. And when he was killed, those little kids were devastated. And, and then as, as a credit to, you know, the forethought of the prosecutor's office and, and Haddon Heights PD, you know, they made sure that everybody in the police department got counseling, but they also, arranged for counseling at all the schools because we were all involved in the schools. They made sure they had a counseling, basically a community counseling session for the entire town and a community counseling session for the neighborhood that was directly impacted because the entire neighborhood in our incident was shot to hell. Wow. So Rich, and, yes. I just want to, can I just back up one second on something you said a, a minute ago? Sure, certainly. You, you you said that the 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 worst day of your life incident happened three blocks, four blocks from where you live. Yes, I I heard that too. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how 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 does that happen? You must go by there a lot, right? In your, in your domestic travels, right? I mean, we, so how, we how, up, how does that work? How, 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 what do you feel like when you drive by there? So we we ended up moving from there uh, about a year and a half later. Haddon Heights, again, the town's a great town. 
And I had developed a lot of special relationships with people from between going to school there um, and being part of the police department and then the community outreach things that we did. Um, the town became too small for us because everywhere we went, everybody was like, how are you doing? We're sorry about exactly. your brother. How are your parents? You know, how are the kids? And it got to the point where we just wanted to be somewhere where we were anonymous for the most part. So we we moved away, you know, about a year and a half later um, after the shooting. But for that year and a half, yeah. uh, I didn't go that way. I went another way to get out of town. Wow. So I, I, I bet you would have never in a million years thought that something like that would have happened three blocks from your house. No, no, I never, never would have imagined that. And that's one of the things when I teach everybody is I remind them just because you live in the neighborhood you work in, that doesn't mean you're any safer. Wow. Well, most uh, car accidents happen a couple of blocks from your house, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe Rich, you know, maybe we just go back to that day then. Um, you're talking about it. Um, maybe we go to that day if you don't mind. Sure. So. April 20th, 1995, we were investigating a child abuse case where a three-year-old little girl was being molested. Um, the suspect was her uncle slash aunt. You were, you were a detective at the time? I was a detective at the time. Yeah. And the protocol in Camden County at that time was because of the age of the victim. The prosecutor's office was the lead agency. Right. But but Haddon Heights is a proud police department. If somebody's investigating a crime in our town, we're going to be part of the investigation. Right. And so my partner, Bob Griffith, and I were assigned to work with the prosecutor's office. Um, Jack McLaughlin was assigned to the case. The um, he was he had graduated the police academy in December of 94 and was killed in April of 95. Wow. So in less than five months, uh, he was uh, killed in the line of duty. Um, Jack was married, uh, had a, a fantastic wife, two children. Um, I've, I've kept in contact with him over the years. I've got to hold his grandchildren, but he is not. Um, that has wow. always uh, been something that's stuck with me. Um, but we were investigating child abuse. The little girl was three. The house it was happening at was the Nelson residence on Sylvan Drive in Haddon Heights. Um, the suspect was uh, Glenn, a.k.a. Leslie Nelson. Uh, he was going through a transsexual procedure at the time. Um, he was accused of molesting the child. The, the child was his brother's daughter. And the mother of the little girl, her father was a police sergeant in Audubon, which is the next town to ours. So I knew the sergeant since I was, you know, a teenager. And I knew the little girl, the mother, since she was a little girl. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we know about the family. Uh, we had gone out the house in the morning to... Uh, see if we could get Nelson to say or say something um, to uh, implicate himself in the uh, assault. Um, 
during the course of the interviews, uh, the detective Jack McLaughlin saw in Nelson's bedroom that he had a bullet reloader. The, um, the interviews went on for quite a while inside the house. Everybody left. We headed back to the police department. We had Dyfus with us at that time. Dyfus left and went off on their own. Um, while we're going back to the PD, Jack explains to us that he's really concerned that Nelson is going to do something to this little girl and the mother. He feels that this is some type of police conspiracy out to get him. And he, you know, Jack's really afraid he's going to do something to hurt the little girl or the mother. So we we had known Nelson had been arrested prior for a handgun. We wrote up a search warrant for the house uh, for weapons since there was a bullet reloader observed in the house. Um, now, Nelson denied any guns being in there to, to Jack and the mother and father of Nelson also said there were no weapons in the house. All of them said they were over in Philadelphia at somebody, some uncle's house because Nelson wasn't allowed to have them in the state of New Jersey. But we wrote up a search warrant. We took it to the judge. The judge approved it. It was approved for the suspect's bedroom only. Um, back then in 1995, search warrants were executed mainly by the officers involved in the job. Getting a tactical team back then took an act of God. Um, so we had uh, discussed many ways to execute search warrant. It was finally decided that we were going to use a tried and true law enforcement method. We were going to lie, um, knock on the door, get the get one of the parents to let us in, tell them we just need Nelson to sign a piece of paper saying nothing happened and we're out of their life. And we would grab them, hook them up and execute the search warrant. Jack volunteered to be the lead detective because he felt he'd develop a rapport with the suspect. I volunteered to be the number two. Um, Jack, uh, or excuse me, Bobby Griffith was the number three. And then behind him was uh, Joe Downs and Ron Shute from our patrol. And then we had another patrolman at the back, Bruce, Bruce Koch at the back door. So we had um, a total of uh, five officers at the front door and one officer at the back door. The mother led us into the house. Um, I'm always a big believer in Spidey sense. When Nelson had Oof. spoken, when Nelson had spoken to us before, um, he'd always spoken in this falsetto female voice. The mother yelled upstairs for Nelson to say that man that was here earlier needs to speak to you. And as I said, Nelson always spoke in this falsetto female voice. Now in a very masculine voice. He yells down, what the fuck do you want? Or, Very loud. And, or excuse me, what the fuck does he want? Mm. And I've dealt with a lot of people in my life, and I always trusted my spidey sense. I noticed two things right away. One, the change in tonality. And then the other I recognized was I've dealt with a lot of bad people in my life. Even they don't talk to their mom that way. And my, my spidey sense tingled. I have my hand on my sidearm. I have my back to the wall. I'm looking at mom and dad. Jack is standing in front of the doorway to the second floor. And Jack is drawn back and forth with Nelson. Bobby Griffith is holding the doorway, the, the screen door open. And 
the patrol, uh, Joe and Ron are behind Ronnie or Bobby and uh, uh, Bruce is at the back door. During the course of the conversation between Jack and Nelson, Jack announces we have a search warrant. Nelson uh, begins to move. Now, I have no idea where Nelson is in relationship to Jack because it's an enclosed staircase. I don't know if he's on the steps, at the top of the steps, looking over the half wall at the top of the steps. I have no idea. Um, we... Jack pulls his sidearm once Nelson starts to move and pursues up the stairway. I pull my gun, yell to Bobby, they're running, he's running, he's running, and off I go after Jack. As soon as Jack gets to the top of the stairs, he turns and he's met with gunfire. Jack, unfortunately, never got his weapon up, never got a shot off, and it was like he was getting hit with paintballs and he was a puppet on strings. And I just remember seeing in, in front of me, Jack just getting hit repeatedly. And I'm thinking, go down, go down, take cover, drop. And I see above and behind me muzzle flashes. Um, it's a half wall in this hallway upstairs. And I see the muzzle flashes. I turned on the stairway. It's a very narrow stairway. It is a textbook definition of a fatal funnel. And I start trying to shoot through the wall at Nelson. As I'm shooting through the wall at Nelson, Nelson is shooting at me. One of the first shots I take is in my right hand, goes into my pistol grip and blows my, basically blows my uh, Ruger P85 up in my hand. I took another shot in the upper arm. Uh, I took two shots to my right chest that penetrated. One exited my abdomen. One of the bullets is in my liver to this day. What kind of rounds are these? AK-47, 7.62s. Wow. But he was loading his, fortunately for me, he was loading his own. So he, he was, you know, thankfully cutting corners and not putting the full charge of powder in there. Um, so it wasn't, it didn't have the, they didn't have the over penetrating force that like a military grade AK 47 round would have. So I took two of those to the right chest. They passed both again, one went out my abdomen, the other stayed, um, in my chest to my liver, right lungs destroyed diaphragm is messed up. Intestines are messed up. I took another shot. Um, I had a big old Motorola brick radio back then that was strapped to my vest, and that took a bullet. Um, I I had a silly superstition. Every time I got a new bulletproof vest, I took the old trauma plates out of the older vests and shoved them in there. So I actually had four trauma plates in my vest, and I took one round directly to the sternum, and that put me on my uh, butt with my head going to the first floor and my feet going to the second floor. That's when I saw Nelson lean over. That's the first time I saw Nelson at this point, leans over the half wall and he shoots me in the leg and the bullet goes in my leg and out my leg. Jesus. Um, so at this What's point, he have, a 30, a 30 round magazine. Uh, at least, at least he, 
um, and he had the magazines combat taped together. And it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because there's a lesson to be learned by law enforcement from Nelson. He did run out of ammunition and he was trying to reload the weapon. He admitted the, the suspect admitted to their defense attorney that they did not practice with that weapon a lot. Now understand Nelson loved to shoot. In the investigation that occurred afterwards, we learned that Nelson went to the range, a couple of different ranges, but he went to the range on average once a week. Hmm. And once a week, he fired a thousand rounds wow. out, of a, out of a variety of different weapons. Um, but he didn't practice his magazine exchanges. He didn't practice with the AK-47 because he couldn't find a range, an indoor range where they could take right. the AK-47. Right. So they didn't practice a lot with that. And when you say they, he was he was with other people. No, no, no. Uh, they is in he was in mid uh, sex procedure oh, okay. change. Gotcha. He so, was a dual personality, if you would. But. Right. Yeah, I you know um, you know and understand. I have I you know it's a it's rather confusing the entire story of Glenn Leslie Nelson. So. Huh. Um, but with when Nelson ran out of ammo, we, I remember him smacking the front of the rifle and running down the hallway to come after me. What I learned later was he was, in fact, trying to reload the weapon. Now, the magazines are combat taped together. If Nelson had practiced more with that weapon, he reloads that weapon split seconds mm. and I'm and I'm dead period, end of sentence, no questions asked, I'm dead, because I was already beat up pretty bad. So... And you and you, you can't defend yourself. You're... No, I can't defend myself because, you know, I'm way too banged up at this point in time. And you're lying be... on the stairway, right? You're, you're... Right. So, you know, for police officers that are listening, it's, it's imperative that, you know, not only you practice with your equipment, but you're intimately familiar with the functionality of your equipment, because in a couple of seconds, I'm going to explain to you how fast this happened. Um, so I use my elbows to push myself off of the steps, pull myself off of the steps back into the first floor. The mother steps into the doorway and starts yelling at Nelson, stop this, stop this. Look what you're doing to my house. Not, not, not you're killing people what? or anything like that. What you're doing to my house, you and you and you're hearing all this. Wow, I'm hearing I'm hearing all this. I have not lost consciousness or anything, and and I'll talk about that in a moment as well. Um, I pull myself up, and I see Nelson is coming down the stairs, raising the rifle over top of their mother, and I see Bobby is about to step into the line of fire. I shove Bobby back. And just yelled, I'm hit, I'm hit, get out. So, so there's a couple of things I'd like to share with you. I've always had a survival conscious, and I was very fortunate in my career that in the beginning of my career, I had almost every supervisor I had was an ex-Vietnam War vet and had seen combat in Vietnam. And they made it their mission to impart upon my generation survival instincts. So, for example, I had this one sergeant. We would go to the gym and lift all the time together as a crew. And he would bring trivial pursuit cards to the gym with us. 
<laughs> and we'd be we'd be lifting and he'd be, you know, asking us what the capital of Peru is. And we're thinking, you know, my man is screwed up. But he, uh, you know, he explained to us, you need to be able to think and move and react in order to survive. If you can't think and move in split seconds, you're going to die someday. And he goes, it doesn't matter what it is. It may not even be on the job, but you need to be able to think and move and react in split seconds. So he was training us how to think and move under physical pressure. And when, when I got shot, you know, tunnel vision slammed in right away for me, but it, it immediately opened. And I saw Nelson running down the hallway. I knew I was upside down on the steps and needed to pull myself out. Um, you know, I saw Bobby running, you know, stepping into the doorway, Nelson raising the rifle. I shoved him back to, and I kind of, you know, I would have made my linebacker coach proud apparently because I basically threw him back into the other guys coming after him. And, and, and at this point you're shot how many times? Uh, seven total, but five penetrated. Um, I then, you know, I sent those guys kind of like a domino towards the front door and I stumbled into a hallway leading to the kitchen. What, what kind of pain are you in right now? I'm not in any pain right then and now it, it, the only thing there, there were two things I felt right away. I felt this intense need to go to sleep. And I also had hard, a hard time breathing because my right lung has collapsed. My diaphragm's been tore up. Um, so I had a hard time breathing. But, you know, I told myself to calm down and, you know, try to breathe a little bit. And then, <laughs> and then I saw I had tan khakis on that day and I saw that my, my leg was basically black, my right leg with blood. And I just grabbed my pant leg with what was left of my right hand and just started clamping down to, to stop the bleeding. And, um, you know, I'd explained this to one of my doctors and they told it to another surgeon. And the surgeon, you know, he came into me later and he said, you know, that was brilliant the way you prevented that pneumothorax. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Prevent the pneumothorax. I had to look up pneumothorax, so I right. <laughs> yes. So I was just trying to stop. The so blood. you right about now, you should tell us what is a pneumothorax. Uh, pneumothorax is when air builds between your lung and your chest wall. Oh, and it keeps your lung from inflating. Sometimes a newborn baby in the first breath they take. It'll be an awkward breath, and they'll do that, and they'll create that bubble between their lung and their chest. Uh, yeah, if you ever got a, a stitch running, now I didn't feel the pain, but it's similar to when you get a stitch running. Now, I was built for comfort, not speed, so running's not <laughs> one of my uh, hobbies, I'll be honest with you. Um, but, you know, when I, when I stumbled into the hallway, I saw a a window in the kitchen. I thought I was going to jump through that window. And I've had people, you know, especially recruits ask over the years, well, why didn't you go out through the front door? And I said, well, because I wasn't running back in front of the guy with the machine gun. So um, that's why I was looking for another way out of the house. Um, when I went into the kitchen, Nelson butt stroke 
uh, mom with the AK-47 and knocked her down the steps and then started shooting through the wall to try and get me in the kitchen. Um, but I had managed to get behind uh, the refrigerator and take cover uh, while he's running back up the steps and firing the assault rifle. Now, was he under the influence? But from the time you left him the first time, all of a sudden he's very agitated when you come back. Was he on the, under the influence of alcohol or drugs or something? What, or is he just a, a schizo and just turned on? So what we found out later after all the search warrants were executed and everything was researched ad nauseum, Nelson uh, kept documents, a significant number of documents, basically a portfolio of material that Nelson studied about killing cops. Nelson, Nelson one of the reasons that um, Nelson's lawyer said that Nelson became a transsexual was because Nelson wanted to have power over men. And he thought that one of the most significant um, power uh, people that had the power over men were police officers. So Nelson studied killing cops. Hmm. And there was about eight inches of paperwork that was wow. found that dealt with nothing but newspaper articles, magazine articles. The internet was very new then, but some things off the internet um, about officers getting killed, our tactics, our equipment, um, the, the, the weapons he chose, for example, AK-47 is going to defeat your body armor, even if the loads are half-assed. Um, he also had a 22 uh, Ruger rifle cut down with 100 round magazines of 22 magnums also going to defeat your body armor uh had his own bulletproof vest because back then anything we shot at you was going to get caught up in a vest because nobody carried patrol rifles back then mm -hmm. um it was shotguns and pistols everybody and the um you know a, a telling thing was um, he had put wet towels at the bottom of all the interior doors when tear gas was introduced because tear gas comes under a door, not over it, and set up a bunker basically waiting for SWAT, you know, some SWAT team to make entry. And he was just going to pick them off from the perch. Um, so, you know, getting back to me, uh, you know, he's shooting in the kitchen. I see a side door. I go out the side door and I thought if I go out front, I'm going to get picked off. But I know the Calvary's out front. If I go out back, I know Bruce is in the back, but I don't know where in the back he is. And it's it's a it's a rather confusing alleyway without buildings and stuff like that. And I didn't want to be wandering around trying to find somebody. So I made a decision to go towards the, the front of the house. Uh, collapsed. Uh, on the front yard, one of our backup guys, Joe Downs, yelled to me to get up. I I pulled myself up, gotten behind a tree and a telephone pole uh, that had grown together. And I yelled down to Joe that, you know, I was hit. Jack was down on the second floor. I didn't know where Bobby Griffith was. And I got to get out. Um, somebody I went to the academy with, uh, Vic Player, he pulls up at that point in time. He heard the officer assist shots fired go. 
Um, Vic pulls up. Joe waves him down to me. Vic pulls up to me. He tosses me. Uh, Bobby, my partner, is caught up with me, throws me in the patrol car, and we leave. As we're pulling away, Nelson is now just going from window to window on the second floor, using them as pillboxes and just opening up on the on the cops. Wow. So we talk about preparedness with the police. The first group of officers that were there actually ran out of ammunition. Um, this was a protracted gunfight. Wow. My brother and his partner are due to come in 3 to 11 tour that day. My brother's partner, uh, Joe Sack, great guy. Joe, um, in fact, I'm the godfather to, to one of Joe's kids. And, you know, we're just dear, dear friends. And he was my partner before he was my brother's partner. Um, Joe always put on his radio before he came to work um, just to be aware of what was going on. Joe hears what's going on, calls my brother, tells him to grab his gear. He's coming to get him. And uh, Joe picks him up. They respond into the scene. First thing they do is they get behind a house and there's a man in the window saying, please save my family. My house is getting shot, shot up because Nelson's just opening up indiscriminately on houses, police officers, everything. Um, this is a this is a residential suburban neighborhood. So the houses are real close to each other. Yes. Yes. Very close. This is not, you know, the houses in Haddon Heights sit on postage stamps. Yep. And they're they're extremely close together. Um, and, it, you know, it's a close knit community. People are, are tight in these communities. So but uh, Nelson is shooting everything up. John and Joe pull the four children out of the window and help mom and dad out of the house. Joe and John carry the two the two kids each like footballs run back into the park where they had parked Joe's truck behind a dirt berm put the kids and mom and dad in the back of the truck and said, just stay here. Don't move. Somebody will come back and get you. John and Joe went back to their position. Uh, Joe advanced uh, to a truck uh, in a neighboring driveway uh, to engage. My brother went to go with his partner and he was picked off in the right eye and killed instantly. Um, oh, damn. Joe, Joe yells out, you know, officer down, officer down. Officers on the front line laid in suppressing fire into the house to get Nelson to stop shooting. Other officers came out of cover, grabbed my brother and and carried him to the medics. Now, there's there's no easy or pretty way to say this. Um, these guys are friends of ours. We've grown up together. We play ball together. We are in each other's weddings, um, you know, godfathers to each other's kids. These guys came out of cover. They've got John's, you know, blood, brains on them. He's obviously dead. They can't lose their cool. They can't lose their professionalism. They turn him over to the medics and then they return to the, the gunfight. John was shot about 11 minutes into the gunfight. The entire gunfight lasted a little over 22 minutes. During the 22 minutes, Nelson fired in excess of 1,400 rounds. Holy Christ. At the cops. And where's his mother all this time? So the mom came out, went out the front door 
and she was taken into custody. And the in father, the middle, in the middle of the gunfight, she runs out the front door. Before, before Nelson had started using the windows as a pillbox. So she came out the front door. The father came out the side door. They were both taken into protective custody, and they both lied about everything about the house during the entire time. Um, they they lied about other weapons being in the house. They lied about the layout of the house. Um, they they did not cooperate one little bit. Um, you know, to give you to give you an example of of the people that we're talking about, uh, several months after this incident, um, they the neighborhood had a healing barbecue. You know, a community barbecue to all come together and. And, you know, talk to one another to get over because, you know, all these people's houses in this neighborhood had bullet holes in them. And the mother had the audacity, I'll say, to not only come to the barbecue, but to complain about all the damage that the police did to her house. And the police had to come in and rescue her from the neighborhood because the neighborhood was about to, you know, go a little uh, off center, shall we say. Um, but that's, you know, this is the type of family that, you know, we're talking about. Um, so what happens to the shooter? The shooter, so there was a, there was, a, well, so what ended the gunfight is, is something I want to tell you about. Never underestimate the value of a good dispatcher. In the, in the gunfight, we had no command control leadership. Everybody responded into the incident and immediately became part of the incident. They were either pinned down or engaged in shooting. Every, everyone. Everybody. The, yeah. Every boss, every supervisor, every chief, everybody was coming in and immediately getting involved. It was probably about 45 minutes to an hour before a deputy chief from the prosecutor's office arrived on scene and said, yeah, look, there's nobody in control here. I'm taking command. We're establishing a command post. We're doing this. We're doing that. And really, you know, he organized a very chaotic situation. But the dispatcher, uh, Melissa Bastine, she took it upon herself, hostage negotiation 101, established communication. She called the house in the middle of the gunfight. Nelson answers the phone. Hello? You're, you're, you're kidding. No, answers the phone. Hello? Huh. What are you doing? Shooting at the cops. Why are you shooting at the cops? They're shooting at me. Well, stop shooting at them. They'll stop shooting at you. Okay. Oh. La last shot fired. No, we no, it, our, wasn't, it wasn't that easy, right? It was. It was. <laughs> And, you know, we want our officer back. We want our officer. He's dead. We want our officer. He's dead. And then finally, he says, I'll prove it to you. He threw Jack's body down from the second floor to the first floor oh, and then used his feet to push Jack's body out the front doorway where it rolled to the bottom of the steps using spotter scopes. He was obviously dead. And, um, you know, one thing I always tell when I'm teaching my, you know, command and leadership classes is, you know, some people wanted to figure out a way to go retrieve Jack's body before the suspect was neutralized or contained. 
you can never risk live people to retrieve a dead person. Um, Jack was obviously dead when Jack and the initial barrage took 23 rounds. And then when Nelson got to the top of the steps, Nelson emptied the clip. And, you know, Jack was obviously dead when he was pushed out the front door. Um, so, you know, Mike, for command and leadership, I always point that out. You know, don't don't give in to your emotions. Your first emotion is go get them. Um, but it can't be. You have to look at the totality of the circumstance and you can't risk live people for, you know, a deceased person. And, you know, our people didn't leave that field that day until Jack was retrieved. Um, and they had no intention of leaving that field that day until Jack was retrieved. Um, so after, um, after an 11 hour standoff, um, hostage rescue from Quantico was landing at the Glenview Avenue school where my brother had his little garden with the first graders. Mm. Uh, they were landing their helicopter there. And when Nelson heard that helicopter coming in, he surrendered and was taken into custody. Uh, he was given the death penalty twice uh, in New Jersey. It was overturned on technicalities. We were prepping for the third death penalty trial when uh, the state of New Jersey uh, overturned the death penalty. Um, and Nelson was given two consecutive life terms for the death of my brother and Jack, who's given an additional 10 years for shooting at me. In order to avoid an insanity plea, uh, the state agreed to drop 73 other counts of attempted murder of police officers. They, they could run strings out to where 73 people had been standing and say, Nelson tried to kill you, 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 and you. and. I, you know, I was I was an academy instructor. I was a very, very active detective, worked with a lot of towns. I knew everybody on that list. I knew them before the shooting. Um, and that was a, that was a hard thing for me to, to process uh, overall, in addition to the deaths in my wounds. But, you know, I always tell people this, um, you know, Jack, my brother and I. Um, we aren't victims. Um, we are, we were police officers doing our duty. The victims in all this are our families. You know, my wife, my kids, my brother's wife, Jack's wife and his kids. Uh, they're the real victims in, in all of this because of their losses. Um, we were doing our duty. We had an oath to uphold and we did it. Um, so I always, you know, I always tell people that, you know, we're not we're not victims here um, and we don't perceive ourselves. Well, I'm I'm speaking for John and Jack now, but I don't perceive us as victims. I perceive us as doing our duty and um, doing it to the best of our ability. Where's when, the suspect? Where's the suspect now, Rich? Um, I'm not quite sure which prison facility Nelson's at. Currently, um, Nelson's been bounced around between a couple of facilities due to um, high risk, things of that nature. So um, I'm not quite sure where Nelson is these days. The 
so, um, you know, just a couple of more things about the shooting. Um, I myself was in surgery for about seven hours the first time. Um, I, during that period of time, the media was reporting that I was dead and my brother was dead. Mm. So I had people coming to my house telling my kids and my, you know, my in-laws that, you know, we're sorry that Rich and John are both dead. Wow. Um, which was hard. My wife was in the hospital. And, to, and again, we talked about the media earlier on. Um, the, the media in this case was reporting that I was dead. My wife called my father-in-law and he's watching my kids and she calls him and he says, I'm sorry to tell you, hon, Rich is dead. And she goes, no, dad, I just talked to the doctor. Rich is, Rich is going to make it. He's going to survive. And he, he tells my wife, no, I'm sorry. They're, they're wrong. He's dead. <laughs> and she's like, he's like, no, the doctor told me he's going to make it. Channel six says he's dead. Well, Channel 6 isn't operating on him. That's the kind of power that the media has over people's psyche. You know, he's not listening to his daughter who's there at the hospital. Um, so needless to say, that was very difficult. Um, I died a little later that night. I actually coded. They missed some internal bleeding on me. Wow. Uh, because AK-47 rounds tumble through the air, they don't go straight like U.S. military rounds. You know, the U.S. military is always operated under, it's better to wound than kill, because if the person's wounded and alive, at least two people are going to carry that person out of combat. So you've taken out three people instead of one. Um, where the Russian and Eastern Bloc militaries operate under the kill them all theory. Um, so um, they missed some internal bleeding. I coded. They gave me a transfusion. They gave me a jump start, brought me back to life. Uh, since that day, I've had 23 surgeries as a result of this incident. My last, my last one was about five years ago. Um, and I died one other time. Wow. Um, I found out that I'm, al I'm a, uh, allergic to fentanyl. And the way they figure that out is really fascinating. Um, they give it to you and you die. Um, <laughs> and, then they, and then they bring you back and go, hey, man, don't ever take fentanyl. <laughs> so, um, you know, make sure they don't put it in any IVs or anything else you ever get, which I wow. make sure they don't. Um, so, um, you know, physical therapy was over a year uh, before I could start using my arm again properly. It took me about five, five months or so to start walking again properly. When, when did you hear about your brother? So, so I only knew Jack McLaughlin as John. That's his real name. Uh, I only met John McLaughlin the day before. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. And he was brand new. And we, you know, he worked in the child abuse unit. He had volunteered to be in that unit. And, you know, fortunately for us, we didn't deal with a lot of child abuse. Um, so while you're on life support, you can still kind of get words out. And I had woken up and I had asked the nurse if, if John had made it, even though, you know, in my subconscious, I knew he didn't. But I asked her if John had made it. And she told, she told me that... Um, no, I'm sorry, John didn't make it. And, you know, I got upset. And 
that's when she said, you know, I, I know what you're going through. I recently lost my brother to a tragedy. You know, losing your sibling is so hard. And I'm like, lady, we're not talking about the same person. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I found out my brother had gotten oh. on scene and died. Um, I, you know, my wife, my yeah, wife, you, and, you had no idea that he was coming on the scene. No, no, no. I was, I was at the hospital. Hope, uh, hopefully, you know, 11 minutes in, I was at the <sighs> hospital probably. Um, Jeez. but, uh, you know, I didn't know he was there. Um, you know, but John, I, I would expect John to be there no matter who it was. Um, you know, I'm fairly certain that when they first got there, he had no idea uh, what was going on or who, you know, initiated it. So um, he probably doesn't even know that I was shot uh, because he was so, shot so soon after he arrived. Um so that's how I found out my brother died. Uh, they had to sedate me at that point in time because I kind of lost, you know, I kind of lost it. Um, and at that point in time, you know, as I, you know, started to come around again, I realized that this was going to overwhelm the hell out of me because, you know, at that point in time, I didn't trust anything anybody was saying to me. And I told, um, you know, other than my wife, and I told her I wanted to see Bobby, who was my partner, to make sure that he was alive. Um, and Bobby came in and, you know, I, I used my left hand and wrote on a pad what happened. And he laid out to me everything that happened after um, after I evac'd out of the scene. And, uh, you know, that's how I learned about my brother's death. Um I was in the hospital for 10 days, um, and that was about all they could take of me. You, you missed me, you missed your brother and Jack's funeral. Yeah, I missed both funerals. Um, the, um, the Camden Police Department really came up big for me. Uh, Camden PD took it upon themselves to put videographers from the police department up at all types of vantage points for the funeral. And they actually made a funeral procession video and service video for me um, so that I could watch their funerals and go out to their sites um, after I was able to to go out and get mobile again. Um, and I and I held my own, you know, kind of private funerals for both of them. Um, you know, so that was that was exceptionally hard for me. And again, making decisions, you know, alcohol was flowing pretty freely at that time. My my other uh, colleagues were trying to figure out how they were going to get me in an ambulance to take me to the funeral because I wanted to go and they didn't want to say no to me. The only thing they couldn't figure out is if they unplugged me from the wall, what would happen if they plugged me into a battery and it didn't restart right away? (laughs) That's the only thing that saved me, uh, <laughs> because other than that, I'm fairly certain they would have hijacked me for the funeral. Um, but, you know, I had I had friends of mine. I had, you know, one of my one of my old sergeants that had retired. He came and uh, actually a couple of them came and stayed the whole day with me. Um, these are guys that had taught me so much as a young police officer. And, uh, you know, I, I respected beyond words. Um, and they, they stayed with me the entire time. So I wasn't alone. 
Um, and, you know, they kept me occupied as opposed to being obsessed with the new news coverage. Um, and that was a that was a big benefit for me as well. Today, today, with the technology today, you would have probably been there, watched it live. As it yeah. unfolded right from your I, hospital bed. Yeah, the technology back then, you know, it's, you know, it's like we didn't have cell phones back then. You know, we we didn't have none of the detectives had cell phones. We had pagers and quarters and dimes in our pockets to call from pay phones. Right. The, the um, cell phones were were those big carrying things with a battery. They weighed about 10 pounds. Right. And they were a fortune for anybody that right. was for anybody that wasn't the ATF. They were they were, they were <laughs> box phones. So the uh, so, you know, cell phones weren't there then. There definitely was no like streaming video services at that time. Um, so, you know, we were at a technological disadvantage at that point. Um, but there were a lot of lessons that were learned from this incident. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, I championed the cause of looking at our incident and pointing out problems and trying to get those problems resolved. For example, nobody had been given any formal how to execute a search warrant training. Nobody, no police department carried, you know, high capacity rifles. Nobody carried carbines. Nobody carried any assault rifles at that point in time in cars. Um, there were no, like I said, getting a tack team took an act of God. Now in you know, Camden County, the greater Philadelphia metropolitan area, there are regional SWAT teams that have officers on duty every day of the week, all day long. So they if you have, have an, medics, medics too, they have, they have medics that are with them. You know, that was one of the things that we discussed about having combat medics as part of the SWAT teams. Um, and, you know, communications was an issue interoperability of firearms was an issue um uh sharing of ammunition was a problem um you know when i when i teach especially um detectives and patrols i tell them you know you need to have a go bag with you and that go bag needs to have power bars water spare ammunition flex cups additional cups dry socks you know, anything you're going to need for a protracted situation, you need tourniquet. to have a yeah, tourniquet, um, medical kit, um, you know, make sure you have that with you at your disposal easily. Sitting under your desk is going to be useless. And not, you know, having a kit that has everything ready to go in the bag is going to be useless as well. You're not going to be stopping on the way to... Uh, a hostage situation and picking up a Slurpee from 7-Eleven, you know, you're going to be hustling to get there. Um, and if you have that bag with you, you, you can be prepared for that worst case scenario. And, you know, I, I did a lecture for the, the New Jersey Chiefs of Police Association, one of the other things uh, recently. And, you know, one of the other things that I go through in my lectures is I talk about the IACP's guidelines on how to handle, from an administrative point of view, an officer-involved suit shooting. We go through, you know, everything, and I point out, you know, what was done improperly with our event and what was done 
really well with ARPA. So for, and, and one of the chiefs came up to me after the class and said, you know, I took your class many, many years ago when I first became a chief. And he goes, the one thing I remember you saying is if you don't do anything else, at least print out the IECP guidelines and put them in your car so you have them with you. And he said exactly 24 hours after you told me that I had an officer that was shot and a suspect that was killed. And he said, I was so thankful I listened to you and had those with me. And, you know, everybody was the better for it because I had the playbook right there in my hands. So, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in, in that type of preparedness um, as a result. But the, you know, the lessons that we learned uh, from there really need to be studied and, and carried across the board so that different people can, you know, prepare for those worst, worst case scenarios, because, you know, you always have to prepare, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And, and when I teach my classes, you know, one of the, I use a lot of quotes in my classes when I teach, and that's because it's easy to remember concepts through quotes. So like one of my quotes is, you know, chance favors to prepare. And we talk about practicing with your equipment and working your mind and your body together so you can think and move. We talk about, you know, spiritual preparation. Um, we talk about um, um, just having the equipment you need when you, when you are involved in a situation. And it's not even just being involved in a shooting. It's, you know, have your rubber gloves with you so you can help somebody in a car accident scene you know get a flashlight that you can carry on your belt because you get into a car chase in camden county new jersey you're going to end up in camden city as sure as god made little green apples and you're going to be chasing somebody into an abandoned property and the first thing you need to be able to do is see if there's a floor there Mm. Uh, the the person you're chasing knows if there's a floor there and knows where the holes are but you do not so you need that flashlight so you're not in the basement of some, you know, abandoned building. Um, and then one of the other quotes that I use is from uh, General Mattis, um, who was the Secretary of Defense, um, somebody that, you know, whose leadership um, I personally admire. Um, he has a quote, you know, be polite, be professional, be prepared to kill everybody you meet. Um, <laughs> and The reason I use that quote is, and I break it down line by line, I will tell everybody, you want to stay out of internal affairs and you want to be respected, be polite to people, you know, be polite to everybody. I was in the street. I was always polite to everybody. I didn't care who you were. It was always sir, ma'am, miss. It was always professional. Um, Be polite and be professional. Um, when I ran the intelligence squad, I would tell the people that wanted to be in the unit that you need to be able to talk with people and you need to be able to build rapport with people. And, and, you know, Ray, you understand this for sure. You're only as good to me as your next informant. If you can't, if you can't relate to people and talk to people and get them to give you information, you're useless to me because our funding for informants was a happy meal gift certificate. Um, and, and even that was rare. 
So it, it depended on your ability to be professional and be polite. And that will make you successful in your career. And it will also help you in your career. Um, the, the other line, be prepared to kill everyone you meet. Quite frankly, you have no idea who your next opponent is going to be. You know, everybody, you know, there's people running around all over the planet that their rubber bands wound just a little bit too tight. And you have no idea when that rubber band is going to snap. It could be when they go to a mall. It could be go when they go to, you know, they cross a bridge and get stopped by somebody. Um, they're visiting a school. You have no idea when somebody's rubber band is going to be, is, is going to snap. Back in, I believe it was 2014 or 2015, there was an incident at the um, U.S. and Customs Enforcement Office in Los Angeles. A supervisor had pulled in one of the agents and was disciplining him. During the discipline, the agent pulled out his sidearm and shot the um, supervisor. And then killed him. And then two other agents came in and killed that agent. So you literally have no idea who your opponent is going to be. So there's a lot of lessons that, you know, I try to take out of what happened. And I try to share those lessons and make them relative to 2021. Because there, there's not a lot of people with me, like me, that, you know, survived this type of horrendous incident. And also, you know, I had made a, a pledge to my brother and Jack that I would never let their memory die. And I was not going to let their deaths be in vain. Um, that there was, I was going to affect change in their honor. And I've affected a lot of change. And, you know, the last thing I'll leave you with is um, after my lectures, I've lost track of the number of officers that have come up to me and asked for my number uh -oh. and, I, and I give it to them and they call me later that night and they tell me, you know, I wanted to let you know that I was going to commit suicide because of whatever they were involved in. But after hearing you and hearing how you survived, I, I know I can get through it now. Wow. And I wanted to thank you for, you know, inspiring me. So. While my incident was a long time ago, I think the message I have is now even more timely than ever uh, because um, because of the times and because of just not a lot of voices like mine that are out there. And Richard, you know, it, it's a message that um, needs to keep on giving. Have you ever thought about writing a book about this and documenting all these lessons learned and I mean, it's a, it's an incredible story and, and God bless you for, for your service, but what's going to happen? I mean, we all get old and at some point, you know, uh, it should keep going. That's my point. This should, this story should be documented for posterity. I don't want to be corny about this. Right. That's what I mean. So the, the first step that I've done in the, in those terms, Pete, is um, we made a documentary a few years ago with Rowan University uh, to preserve some of the voices besides mine. Uh, as to that day, we we have um, like one of the things I'm most proud of is we we found the family that John had rescued um, from the house and talked to them now about, you know, that day and my brother 
Wow. Um, and we, you know, talk to other citizens, other officers, the spouses, the kids of the officers. Um, that was my first step in preserving this this memory and also preserving the memories of not just the two people that were killed. Um, a book is in my is in my future, but it's kind of on my to do list. Um, and as you know, I, I'm a little OCD, so my, <laughs> my <laughs> I knew that to get a chuckle out of you. Um, my my OCD uh, will will make me do it, but uh, finding the time to do it is uh, is uh, the the challenging thing. I also have a few things I wrestle with morally. Um, like I don't charge for my lectures ever when agencies have, or people have money that they would like to pay to me. I always have them dedicated, actually give it to, uh, there's a memorial clock that Haddon Heights erected, um, in honor of my brother and Jack. And we've since added a firefighter that died in the line of duty from Haddon Heights on it. Um, that costs a lot of money to upkeep that the town can't pay. So I have people that, you know, donate to the clock fund and I have people donate to the scholarship fund in my brother's memory. And that, you know, again, that's timely because it's a scholarship for criminal justice majors in a time when getting people interested in criminal justice is extremely difficult. Well, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but if you had a book, you'd have people from California to uh to uh, the north, the south, the east, the west, donating the profits of that book to the cause that you select. Yeah, and that's what I—that's what I need to control. So, um, again, I'm—I'm I'm working on it. I have a, an outline and where I'm going. I just have not finished putting pen to paper yet. Well, uh, we just heard your outline. That was uh, quite incredible. So, Rich, uh, well, and before I forget, we will add links in the show notes to not only that uh, documentary, but any of the other um, fundraising links that you'd like us to. We could put that sure. in the show notes as well. But my final question was actually going to be, is with with this tragedy, what have you done to sort of pay it forward? And you've already explained that. And I, I can't thank you enough for what you continue to do uh, for the law enforcement community and and for this great country in general. So thank you. And thanks for coming on. And, and, Pete, and, uh, and, God, and God bless the families that, that were affected yeah. here. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was very hard on the families. Um, my wife, I credit my wife 100% with me you know, moving on and not feeling sorry for myself. She, she really pulled me up by my bootstraps and I have to, you know, thank her profusely. Um, so Ray, I've, I've appreciated our friendship for uh, more years than either of us really would like to count at this point in time, uh, probably about 27 years. Wow. Um, and Pete, uh, it's a great pleasure to finally meet you. And I appreciate both of you guys. It's an honor to meet you. Oh, well, Thank you for that. Um, but, you know, I appreciate you guys giving me the, the time to talk about this and hopefully uh, awaken some other people. And, you know, in the links that you're going to put up, Ray, if, if you were able to get a link to the IACP guidelines for officer involved shootings, certainly um, that would be 
uh, very helpful for people because it really gives the agency a step-by-step playbook as to what they should be doing from the frontline supervisors to, um, to, to, you know, officers involved, frontline supervisors, bosses. And I'll just leave with one, you know, last quick story. A friend of mine, he went on a 911 hangup call uh, a week after he had taken my class, him and his partner. This time, instead of it being a hang up 911 call, it was actually a home invasion in progress. Mm. As they walked up to the front door, the front door flew open and the suspect shot my friend in the hip with a 45 caliber pistol. Um, he went down. They both returned fire. Suspect retreated and ran out the back. Um, but, you know, the both guys were named Chris. The one that's not wounded jumps on top of the one that is, starts applying immediate pressure, tells them to, you know, remember what Rich taught us, keep calm, don't go to sleep, stay awake, fight it, you know, talk to me, keep talking to me, calm yourself. And he kept pressure on the injury. And lo and behold, to find out that the fractured hip uh, nicked his femoral artery. Wow. And the doctor said that if if his partner hadn't kept this cool and kept that pressure on the entire time, Chris would have died. Um, and so those IECP guidelines talk about those things. So, you know, they're they're critical. Well, thank you for that. And we certainly will. You're a great American, my friend. Yes, thank you so much. So are you guys. I appreciate everything you've done over the years as well. Both of you. Thank you. Be safe. All right, guys. Thank you.